0: Welcome, dear listeners, to 2019 on the Jacobs Podcast. Before we get started with the interview with Richard Crone, the first episode of the year, I'd just like to thank listeners and also just remind uh, people listening out there to please get in touch if you have any topics or ideas or feedback for discussion. Uh, Please rate the podcast on whatever medium you listen to, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or iTunes or Pocket Casts. Uh, Please rate it because that does help in terms of exposure and also just uh, share with your friends. Um, I'd really like to grow the podcast this year and it'd be very helpful uh, to get the word out there uh, by advocating and sharing it with others. So without any further, I'd just like to thank you again and we really look forward to another big year on the podcast. Happy listening and until next time. Okay, well, welcome, dear listeners, to another edition of the Jacobs Podcast. My guest today is Richard Crone, who's the author of The Parallel University. Um, Richard's led, pardon me, a pretty interesting life. He's had 40 years of experience, mainly in small to medium enterprises, and he has degrees in science and also leather chemistry, which is very interesting, and experience also in the residential aged care sector. And today we're just going to talk to him on the podcast about his very excellent book Richard welcome to the Jacobs podcast.
1: Thanks very much Sean thanks for uh, having you on, having me on your wonderful podcast
0: you're very welcome and I did mean it it is a great book and I'm just going to ask you probably for the first question something that you is not very original but I'm sure you haven't been asked before but um, what was your motivation or why did you write your book the Parallel University?
1: Well, it started off some time ago when I I saw what was happening with my grandchildren, especially with careers advice. And uh, I looked at the sort of advice and how they were getting advice. And and then I looked at that in terms of the number of people that were dropping out of universities and the people that were, once they had gone through university, weren't getting jobs. And I thought, well, something's going wrong here superimposed on top of that we had a lot of 35 year olds complaining they couldn't buy a house um, there are three major expenses in your life that you have to you know save up for the first is buying a house the second one's educating your children and the third one's funding your retirement and if you're going to achieve those three you have to have some sort of plan in order to do that and, and it takes some considerable time and people obviously were waking up at 35 and 40 and then finding that they'd lost a lot of that time. Mm. Uh, I think the third reason was language. Mm. And, and this is more when I started to, you know, how do, how do I put all this stuff down? And the first thing I came across was, was language, you know. There's a lot of um, research going on at the moment about what what kids, especially in university, are thinking mm. And one of the questions was, you know, are you in for socialism or capitalism? Okay, so there are, there are a couple of ways of creating or trying to create equality. And and the first is the Lenin, Stalin, Mao and, po- Mao and Pol Pot way, which is to either kill people or take them out of existence. And the other one is to tax the rich to an incredible extent so they become poor. Well... Both of those have been tried, and what a lot of people don't realise now is that the high taxing way was was used in the UK, the US, and Australia in the 70s. Um, and if you look back through the Beatles repertoire, you'll, there's a song there called Tax Man, and it says, On the Tax Man, one for you, 19 for me. Um, and that was uh, a comment on the 95% tax rate that they were paying in the UK. Mm. And the simple fact is that it, it didn't work. Both of those things didn't work. And as Einstein was quoted mm-hmm. as saying, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Mm-hmm. So I, f- I felt it was important that people understood what these words mean. Mm-hmm. Another one that's topical at the moment mm-hmm. is globalism and globalization. Mm-hmm. And I was interested to hear on your podcast, Will, trying to. Um, define these and, and I guess my definition or my understanding of the definition is slightly different and that is that globalism is about um, international government where it's the, the operational planning of economic and foreign policy on a global basis which means going much more towards mm. international government as opposed to globalization, which is having nations play nicely together in terms of, of trading together. Mm. Um, so one is really a government function, and the other one say, um, an economic function. And while globalization and more trade, I think, is something that we really should be looking at, mm. globalism, or having you know, world governments, especially unelected officials, telling us what to do, mm. um, has some problems. Um, another thing that led me to it is, is this question of equality, mm. and the Pareto principle has been around for a long time, and we all know the eighty twenty rule, um, and the fact is that eighty percent of the people are going to end up with twenty percent, and twenty percent are going to end up with eighty percent. That's the law of nature. To try and change that, you're trying to change nature, and. And that's why it simply doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that people don't realize is that there are 16 different types of intelligence. Well, some people say 16, some people say 13, but mm. you can't be good at all of them. So somebody's incredibly intelligent in one area, but not so intelligent in another area. So we're, we're all different and, and we need to understand that and work with it. Mm. Another thing that drove me was that I became aware that 80% of retirees in Australia are on the pension or the part pension. Mm. Now that's just incredible after 26 years of superannuation mm. and and it just doesn't make sense but it does when you look at the fact that the average returns over those 26 years have been 7.4% mm. whereas the average return on the stock market has been 11.4%. Mm. Well. I started writing this three years ago, and I was having trouble explaining when the, where the four percent went. But thank goodness Ken Payne came along and and told us all. Mm-hmm. And and that's the fact that people need to understand is that the, that four percent makes a huge difference to their what they're going to end up in in retirement, mm-hmm. um, and that's in their control. Mm-hmm. But I listed about 30 reasons why I wrote the book at one stage, but mm-hmm. most referred to just mm-hmm. gaining knowledge.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In order to make decisions, you need to gain knowledge, and, and that requires work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I know that Winston Churchill was quoted as saying, anybody at the age of 21 who's not a socialist has no heart, mm-hmm. and anybody that's still a socialist when they're 40 has no brain. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the main reasons for writing the book was to explain to my cr- grandkids that they don't have the luxury of waiting until they're 40 to take control of their lives. Mm. That may have been possible a, gen- a generation, two generations ago now, mm. but if you lose that time between 20 and 40, you can't make it up again. Mm.
0: Um, yeah, and just that, and that can... sort of just jumps out right there, I think, Richard, in terms of getting the jump on things or getting ahead of the game as the expression goes and I think what I really enjoyed and you might have written about it in the book or expressed to me before um, some way was putting a an older head on young shoulders and I've often found that you know what I write about in my book for example um, is a much shorter time span than that than looking at the full you know 60 years but looking back on your 20s at least is that just that importance of getting the jump on things or coming up with a bit of a plan because i've found that in a lot of contexts um you know for example in my career so far spending a lot of time in government um you do sort of create a rod for your own back if you don't engage early and this can apply to any arena that you're in or in any sort of sector of work but it's important to just start working on things as soon as you've been given a task um, otherwise, if you let it sort of percolate you 'll just um, run down your time frame, put yourself in a bad situation um, and then you know someone inevitably your manager or whoever will be knocking on the door asking where something is and you find that you haven't been able to produce it because you haven't got started early and I found that was just a useful overlap between being in the workplace for example, as a young professional, but then looking at you know the broader picture about you know superannuation and those sorts of things as well so I kind of like that, that term an older head on younger shoulders
1: yeah and I, and I think if you take that argument to its logical conclusion you, you look at the parents that take along their kids as ballerinas or whatever it is it, at the age of six or seven to ballet classes and the and the teacher looks at them and says, Well, you're too old to start.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you've got to start at the and I think uh, you said at one stage about Tiger Wood, starting at, mm-hmm. you know, two or three. Mm-hmm. If yeah, if if you wanna be good at something, the earlier the start the better. I mean obviously when you're when you're younger it's easier to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's easier to try things, and quite frankly, if you try things early and fail, the the results aren't drastic. If you if you leave a lot of these decisions until you're 40 or 50, mm. and you fail, then well, then you're in real trouble. Mm. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah. And what I think really drop, and we'll get to finance. I know, but because I, I do like how you pay attention to all of these sort of broader themes as well. It's not just purely self-development or working on oneself but what really brings this home to or has brought it home to me is this the idea of compounding interest and you know warren buffett talks about it talked about a lot on the podcast as well but when you look at returns over a a long period of time from making wise or prudent decisions in the short run um they sort of they they pay off so but we'll get to that in a second finance but um one of the things that it's just really important, as we touched on before, is just the need for actually creating a bit of a plan so you can get um, get there and just look at the long term. Maybe just touch on the reasons, I guess, why you need a plan and especially how it relates to retirement and confronting life's inevitable challenges.
1: Okay. Well, I think we've got to, in all of these things, we've got to understand how quickly things have moved. Mm. Um I you know technology is moving at such an incredibly rapid rate. I was telling a story just a couple of days ago about I, I went to the air exhibition in um, in Seattle and there's one great room there that that shows the history of flight in the first 50 years. Mm-hmm. And the first plane is literally bits of wood covered in fabric. Mm. And then hanging from the ceiling is a stealth bomber. <laughs> So the aircraft industry went from basically the first flight of the Wright brothers through the jet engines and stealth bombers in 50 years. I mean, that's just a huge change. And, of course, when I was born, my life expectancy was about 60. Mm. The average person was at, uh, was educated until about 16. Mm. They worked until they was 65, had a couple of years in retirement, and, and that was it. Mm. A life like that didn't require a plan Mm. but today the average person will be educated until they're about 22. Mm. They'll work frantically until 45 or 50 Um, Mm. and then they'll change careers or become a consultant for the next 10 or 15 years and then they'll make another gear change to be a mentor until they're about 85 Mm. uh, before having 10 years in retirement and, and, and living till the age of 95. Well, that sort of lifespan and those changes require a plan. Mm. I and
2: mean,
1: then during the first 30 years of work, um, they'll have far more earned income than investment income. Mm. Uh, and as their role changes to consultant and mentor, their earned income will slowly decrease and their unearned income will increase. Mm. Uh, it's not like the old days where you had earned income bang, retired, the next day you're on unearned income. It's a slow changeover from one to the other, and you need to get that right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we need to talk about one of those rules of thumb that are a total fantasy. You see it in the in- retirement community all the time, that you need 75% of your final salary to live on in retirement. Well, I can tell you from personal experience that you need a lot more than that, mm-hmm. because... You all of a sudden you're at home and you've got all the jobs to do that you've been putting off for the last decade. Uh, you've got hobbies you want to get involved in. They all cost money. You've got holidays you want to go on. Mm. If you restrict yourself to 75% of your final salary, you're going to be pretty miserable in, in retirement. Mm. Um, also, you need a plan for your life as well as just the finance. So mm. you need a plan for your whole life to job satisfaction. Mm. I mean every job's the same after six months and that was said by a jet fighter pilot Mm. you
2: know -hmm.
1: the first time you do something you you find it challenging the the second time it's exciting uh then you get the rewards of teaching somebody else how to do it but sooner or later you get tired of it and you want to move on Mm -hmm. and and that needs a plan Mm -hmm. your lifestyle needs a plan i mean when you're young you might you might want a big garden and and if you're young and fit, you can look after it, but later it gets harder and harder and you want to move. Um, When you're 30, you can survive on five hours' sleep, go out partying all night and get up early the next morning, but when you're 50, that's not so easy. Um, So you need to plan for your lifestyle. Um, We talked about the financial reward. You need a gear change from earned income to unearned income. Kudos, that changes. In high school, we all want to be part of the cool crowd, mm. but as you as you grow older and get a family and stuff, you know, being held in high esteem by others probably becomes less of a uh, a goal. Mm. Um, so your inter- interaction with society needs a plan and, mm. and ethics, too. Mm. I mean, you can get away with white lies at school. You can get away with, you know, mm. touching the boundaries, but... At some stage, you're going to have to make a choice whether you're going to be a straight shooter or Mm. whether you're going to bend the rules. So you need a plan for that too. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, a plan's important because Mm. it gives you goals and therefore a direction. Mm. Without direction, you're like the proverbial rudderless ship, you know, drifting in the wind and the currents. Mm. And it saves you a lot of time. Um, Once you know where you're going, it's easy to make quick decisions. Mm. Uh, an example of that is, you know, do I want to spend time with Joe Blocks?
2: Mm. Well,
1: Joe's a nice guy that struggles in life. He can be funny and he can be hurtful. He tends to be very serious and, and needs a lot of nurturing. Mm. Without a plan, I'd lie awake at night, you know, tossing up the benefits of the relationship to me, to Joe, and indeed the community as a whole. Mm. But with a plan, I'd say... I've made an agreement with myself that I'm not going to develop relationships with people that drag me down. Mm. I I have enough drill, trouble dealing with my own issues without spending time you know, with, with people that make me feel worse. Mm. So there's no doubt that you may have agonized over the decision to say that in your plan, mm. but once you've said it, then every time it comes along, the decision's made just like that. And that so ultimately, it saves you a lot of time. Mm. Uh, with a plan, it's a known fact that if you have a goal, you're statistically more likely to achieve that goal than if you're just winging it. Mm. It's a known fact that if you measure performance, it'll get better. Mm. Uh, I mean, anybody that runs or does anything will tell you that. You know, you go on the same run, you want to beat your own time, don't you? Sure. And the same thing happens mm. when you've when you've got a documented plan. Mm. Um, also in problem solving, we spend a lot of time defining the problem. Mm. Without going through the whole planning process, you're most likely to answer the wrong question. Mm. And, and people in, in work as well as in their lives spend years answering the wrong question. Mm. Um, uh, most people blast off on their own agenda without considering the environment they're, they're living in. Mm. I mean, take the, take the example of immigrants to this country over the last 150 years. I mean, the vast majority that came here looked at the environment they were in um, and came to the conclusion there was no future for them there. So they moved to the new environment of, of Australia where they were able to obtain their objectives. Mm. Now, that, that's actually reversed on us now. Mm. Uh, Because we've created this wonderful welfare state where we're actually getting immigrants that want to come here because they're going to be looked after. Whereas 50 years ago, we had immigrants coming here because they wanted to build their own lives. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in today's environment, the vast majority are saying they can't afford their house, um, let alone educating their kids in retirement. Mm. It's easy to do if you plan it and you have written goals and you stick to those goals. Uh, without a plan, just not part of the, It's just not going to work, and that's what people are finding. Mm. Uh, and understanding yourself is a key part of the plan. Yeah. Uh,
0: Absolutely, I think um, one of the, one of the bits of advice I was given pretty early in my career from a mentor who actually wasn't too much older than me but who was quite advanced in their career and I was tossing up whether I should be taking a small secondment um, somewhere. And I think it was about 10 months or so and at the time it was kind of a, a big deal thinking about it if I wanted to do it or not. But he just sort of simply said that, you know, 10 months out of a 50-year career isn't going to sort of break things too much and if you've got your sort of ideals worked out about why you're doing it, Um, you know it's to build skills it's not going to put too much pressure on um, your ethics or be too much of a a stretch it'll increase your performance but I think it sort of somehow generically gets you to a place that you're sort of thinking about in terms of a goal then you you know it's good to have a plan but accept um, you know also having some flexibility in it but not to the point that where your goals are so elastic and changeable but I just kind of like that idea of having a plan but then allowing some wiggle room in there to be to be able to um, sort of deviate from it where necessary. What are your thoughts there?
1: Oh, look, I think Stephen Covey said that best in his seven habits. Mm. In, the, in the seventh habit, there's a wonderful story about the young kid that wanted to be a Canadian woodchopper and his father mm-hmm. wanted him to go to university. Mm. And he said, no, I, I want to join the forestry team, so... They sent him off and and he sort of matched it with the boys on the first day and the second day he fell behind and the third day he got up early, worked late and fell further behind and by the end of the week he was really dragging his tail. And he went up to the foreman and said, well, I really thought I was good enough to do this job but um, obviously I'm not. And the foreman said, well, why don't you go off to university and if you ever think about coming back and having another go i suggest you take some time out to sharpen your axe
2: <laughs>
1: and <laughs> and that is just so true i mean if you want to get somewhere you know you're better off to sit down for an hour mm. and spend some time on sharpening your skills and mm. and getting your act together uh, rather than just beating your head against the brick wall going nowhere so i think you're dead right there
0: mm. one of the other points too i think is just discipline you know and being able to stick to a plan if you've got one as much as flexibility is important but um one of the interesting things when i think i cite it in my book or at least i've written about it before but that brookings institution study from the u.s that if you graduate from high school um you you wait till you're age 21 to get married and have kids and then Mm -hmm. you're you know if you keep a full-time job apparently statistically your chances of Falling into poverty dropped to about 2%. Um, if you just sort of follow that level of discipline, and I've always thought that has doesn't seem like too high a benchmark, but sticking to discipline obviously requires a bit of resilience. And when you sort of look at the landscape today, Richard, and you did allude to it at the start, so do you think we're losing resilience or we've lost it completely?
1: Uh- I remember in 1985 there was a TV series called Anzacs and the lead character was played by Paul Hogan. Uh, and it was obviously set in the First World War where the Anzacs were recognised for their resilience. And Hugs was asked in an interview you know, where this resilience came from. And he said, well, I, I don't really know, but, but you have to remember that the majority of Anzacs came from rural backgrounds, young boys that were brought up in the bush. You know, after a fire or a flood, the, the house was gone, they'd rebuild it. So when they were in a trench and they got bombed out, they'd just built a new home. It was normal for them. Mm. However, the Europeans have lived in the same house for generations, and so change was really difficult for them. When they got bombed out, their sense of loss was much deeper and much greater than it was for the Anzacs. Mm. So... I think we, yeah, I think you're right. We haven't, we're not losing our resilience. We've lost it, you know. Over 100 years ago, 90% of the world population lived in poverty. Today, it's 8%. Um, At the same time, you know, the average couple had five children and was survived by only two children. Today, people say it's unnatural and horrific to have a child die before you. Then it was normal. Most children died before their parents. Children left school at 14 and had to fend for themselves. There's no comparison between the resilience required in the 19th century and the 21st century. Mm. Uh, the first really hit me hard after Hurricane Katrina. Um, I saw footage of these people in a football stadium basically throwing a tantrum, demanding help from the government. Mm. Certainly in the 19th century, there would have been no thought of government help, mm. Um and in the 20th century, it may or may not have come, but now in the 21st century, that's what people look at first. Mm. I mean, what is resilience? Yeah, you know, It's the, I guess, the, the ability to recover.
2: Mm.
1: And, and we don't recover anymore, either on a, either a personal level or a social level.
2: Mm.
1: As individuals, we tend to recall, you know, in shock and horror at the face of difficulties, and we look for someone to blame. Mm. You know every time you see something go wrong, people want to blame somebody else and then they want compensation for it,
2: mm-hmm.
1: so they spend two or three years of their life going through a whole legal process of trying to find somebody to blame and then trying to get some recompense for it mm-hmm. and and that's doesn't help them recover whatsoever in fact, it puts the whole recovery process back mm-hmm. um it's really interesting, that, you know, is watching small children. Uh, it was interesting. I used to watch the grandkids when they were running around, and you have some kids that, are, you know, when they've just learnt to run, they run forward and they trip over and fall flat in their face. Mm-hmm. Um, some kids all get up and carry on, and mm-hmm. and, and others all burst into tears. <laughs> but what what I found was that the if you if you heard one of them fall, I'd just turn around mm. and look away from them. Mm. And nine times out of ten, they'd, they'd get up and look to see if anybody was watching. Mm. And if nobody was watching, they'd get over it and carry on. Mm. But if somebody was watching, then they'd burst into tears and, and want comfort. Mm. And I think that's what we've taught our kids these days. It is not when you fall just to get up and go again, but to have a look around and see who's going to be there to comfort you and then pull your heart out. Mm. So
0: I think I always sort of think about sort of resilience and what you've described in terms of, and I hope I'm not drawing too long a bow here, but you know, when you go to the gym, for example, it's kind of the same approach with building muscle and the old concept behind just, I guess, any physical training is you've sort of got to break things down to rebuild them again. Um, but sort of do it in a way that's balanced and isn't completely sort of wiping you out and um, where you're going backwards. But, you know, I sort of do sense that that sort of point you make about sort of rights and responsibilities and I guess a lot of young people divining, defining themselves, part of me, in terms of grievance these days is certainly a, a huge or a big factor. One the sort of environmental things too that you point out in your book As well, Richard is how things have changed. um, You know, psychologically in terms of the landscape. About you know, the brain is still sort of geared for a fight or flight type Savannah living. When I guess we're really not in that um, sort of arena anymore. It's kind of uh, examining what show on Netflix you'd like to watch, or or what have you. Maybe just touch on that. I think that's a really interesting part for listeners about. How the landscapes change in that perspective, and maybe our brains aren't quite there yet to
1: um, be able
0: to make up for this changed
1: landscape. Well, um, you know, I first studied geology, and obviously, in geology, you're, you're looking at millions of years, if not hundreds of millions of years. So, you know, the the time frame that we're looking mm. at is, I, I think Homo sapiens have been around for five hundred, six hundred thousand 600,000 years, whatever it is. It's a, it's a fair time that they've developed. Mm. Um, and during the whole of that, let's say, 500,000 years, um, they're focused on two things. Mm. Survival, procreation. That's been the whole focus of their life, is staying alive and producing offspring. Mm-hmm. And their mind is geared towards doing that and, and that's what encompasses everything in their life mm. however as the rate of poverty has dropped from 90 percent to 8 percent we're spending less time surviving and we've got more and more time to interact with our environment and and this has produced huge psychological differences mm. um because the real meaning of life was survival and procreation. So Mm. what's happened is we've taken away the meaning of life, and if you take that away, what do you replace it with? Mm. Um, And if you listen to Noah Harari, Mm. um, he'll say, well, at the moment we've replaced it with drugs and alcohol and video games, um, but that's probably not the best thing. Mm. Well, it's certainly not the best thing. It needs to be replaced by something. I I believe we need to replace it with a feeling of being useful. Mm. Um, I think that that encompasses who we are and, and what we are and where we're going is if we're useful in society, we're useful to our family, we're useful to ourselves, well, then we have a meaning of life. Just, you know, when we live... That rural lifestyle. Somebody had the job of hunting. Somebody had the job of gathering. Somebody had the job of making clothes, building fire, and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Everybody had their place in society that was needed for survival. Well, we need to put ourselves in that, mm. and and, mm-hmm. and you know, physiologically we haven't changed in the last hundred and fifty years, but psychologically the difference has been absolutely massive
0: Mm. do you think just quickly on this point that um, just to sort of push back or argue the toss I guess quickly for um, let's just say Millennials I think you know you also want to be useful to an employer and um, you know you quickly find out if you don't have the requisite skills but I do think a lot of young people do find that out quickly and then they have a bit of an appetite or a hunger to be useful um, in terms of the workplace. So what are your thoughts just quickly on, on that point? Um, you know, while we might not be seeing examples of resilience from sort of past you know, generations today um, in our younger people, but do you think that there is a bit of an appetite out there for young people to skill up or to be useful? I think you know a lot of someone, for example, would cite um, that you know lots more young people at university today, um, or at TAFE, or at training colleges or RTOs, exactly because they want to be useful. What would be your response to that?
1: Um, I remember when I was about 17 years of age, and my father sent me in to see the um, personnel officer at a company called BASF who were at the time the largest chemical company in the world. They employed 350,000 people. Mm. And he explained to me that there are about you know, 15 levels in the organisation, and you started on level one, uh, and then you got to level two and level three. And then he said, by the time you get to level three, there are more jobs in level four than people that want to make that step. Mm. Um, and I found that, very difficult to come to grips with over many years. We're working in manufacturing industry I had the vast majority of people that came and worked for us really came to work to get away from their home environment mm. it was it was almost like coming to a rest they wanted to stand up and just operate a machine and put their brain in the neutral mm. um, so I, I would actually argue the opposite I, I mean for a start I think the the vast number of courses now that they call university courses aren't university courses. And in fact, I'd go as far as to say they've actually changed the definition of uh, the word university to be able to encompass most of the universities these days. Um, I would say that the the vast majority of people have that inbuilt feeling of of wanting to... uh, they're in survival mode and, and they don't know how to be useful um, and that's a real problem for them and I think that's a function of what happened where we had this whole process of economic rationalisation which you'd know from other discussions you've had with me I, I think it was a terrible mistake it, it was never about the cost of manufacturing It was about the distribution channel. Mm. And we gave away a huge manufacturing basis and with that a lot of those jobs that people wanted uh, away on a a theory that just wasn't working. And and, um, we won an export prize about 15 years ago, 10 years ago, sorry. No, it was 15 years ago, 15 years ago. And my wife went to Boston for this conference as a result of winning this prize. And even then, the vast majority of American industry that had gone offshore, specifically to Mexico, had realized it was a mistake and wanted to come back on, on shore, so to speak, back into mainland USA. And, of course, what Trump's doing now is just doing what they've been asking him for the last decade. We want to bring our jobs back into America. Why? Because there are people here that want to do them. We can control them better. And it's all about the distribution channel. So I'd say that um, it's that Pareto principle again. You know, there's probably 20% of the population that want to go ahead and, and... create 80% of the output, but the other 80% of the people are just prepared to be led and want to be led and need good leaders.
0: One of the things I mentioned at the start, Richard, was I really enjoyed the book, your book, The Parallel University, is how you pay attention to um, not just self-development, but you know issues of inequality, finance, globalism, um, and the way you incorporate the political scene as well, I think is very well done and just hugely important and something I sort of try to allude to a little bit but not so um, explicit in my book but just tell us a bit about progressive politics because you do touch on that towards the beginning and it comes back towards the end in your book and what does the left or progressive politics of today look like compared to when you were growing up?
1: Well. Um, my first job was with the Victorian EPA as a water quality officer, and one of the guys that I worked with, his, his father was a union steward in the coal mines in the La Valley. And in those days, which would have been the 50s, the job of, of the union steward was to make sure that in the team everybody was carrying their weight. So if the team had to do X tonnes per week, Then that was divided up amongst the 10 members or whatever there was, and everybody had to do their share and couldn't lean on the rest of the crew. So, progressive politics in those days was about the left going to management and saying, Well, we want to increase productivity, we want a bigger share of the pie, but we realise that in order to do that, we have to increase the size of the pie. Whereas today, Progressive policy, uh, um, politics, to me, you know, is, is summed up, basically, in the UBI. Um, that's where we're heading. In, in fact, I, I would argue that the whole thing of climate change, equality, same-sex marriage, are all the versions from the real agenda which the left is moving towards, which is the universal basic income.
2: Okay.
1: Then they've got control over everybody if everybody has its major income or its universal basic income coming from the government then the government is control of your life you have given over control of your life and I would say that in that case once you do that you give away the meaning of life and as a result you're left as an empty shell which is why Harari in his TED talk said, yep, and all those people are sitting around the world watching binge, watching um, Netflix, they're watching YouTube videos, they're on drugs. And we all know that, you know, especially in the US, there's a, there's a huge drug problem.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think it, it comes back to understanding what this means again. And you know, people look at you and say, you're a conservative, that's a really bad thing. So I was trying to explain to somebody you know, actually what a conservative is and I was thinking of somebody you know, scaling a rock wall if, if you're climbing a rock wall or, or a mountain what you do with each toehold with each handhold is you, is you put your hand up there you find the hole you put some weight on it Then you put more weight on it to make sure that it will actually take your full weight before you change your weight to that handhold and move your way up the mountain. That's what conservatives do. They put a stake in the ground, they peg their values somewhere before they move on, knowing that if they fall, they've got something to fall back on. Mm -hmm. That the progressive is somebody that just willy-nilly climbs up, and if they miss a handhold, well, they fall. Mm. And I think, you know, we can see a great example of that at the moment with um, Bill Shorten saying he's going for a 50% renewables. Well, nobody has the faintest idea what that looks like or what the results may be. Mm. That, to me, is just somebody. Climbing up a mountain without a safety net Without anything and hoping the hell It's going to click
2: mm-hmm.
1: I actually saw this uh, Again in my Grandkids we, we went go kart Racing one day and, and one of the grandkids was the Absolute king of the mountain, so to speak On, on the video games
2: mm-hmm.
1: And when we actually got In the real car
2: mm-hmm.
1: He was one of the last
2: Yes yeah. And,
1: and I thought about it for a while I thought, well, why, why was he king of the mountain on the video game? Because he'd go flat out, nine times out of ten he'd crash But every tenth time he'd do a great time So his time was up there Whereas
2: mm.
1: in real life you can't afford to crash mm-hmm. So what you do is pick your skills up And slowly get better, you know, little bit by little bit So I see what the... The Labour or the um, Progressive parties are, are doing at the moment is slowly making people rely on government, so that they vote for a living mm. instead of work for a living. Mm. And there was a famous quote by Rex Connor, who was the Minister for Mines and Energy in the Whitlam government, and he said in frustration one night on on TV, he told the uh, interviewer that the aim in Australia is to dig up all the minerals that we've been blessed with and sell them Sure, so no Australian has to work
2: mm-hmm. Uh,
1: mm-hmm. and and I don't think it's changed much since then mm. however the, the problem is that if you do that
2: mm.
1: then you're taking away people's meaning of life um, and that's gee whiz, something that they can't handle and that's part of the the massive drug problem that they've got in the US and, and, and here.
0: Now, just moving now on to finance, and I promise we'd get around to it and uh, being a fan of compounding interest and not wanting to pay too many fees. Um, yep. What, just tell us a bit about finance, if you can, and, um, I guess, returns over time. And you mentioned you are involved in manufacturing There, Richard, but it's sort of two different things, isn't it? When people sort of think about finance, they can sort of clump it together with business when that's not really the case. There's a distinction to be made.
1: Well, there's a huge distinction between the economy and finance. You know, if we we talk about the economy, in my opinion, Australia's in real trouble because you've got wealth-creating industries, which are mining, agriculture, and manufacturing, basically. And then you've got money going around in circles, which is the service industries. Mm. Um, And the best way I can describe that is, have a look at a family unit. You've got mum, dad, and three kids. Well, the eldest kid is pretty keen on, on computers and programming and stuff like that, and mum and dad aren't too good on that. So mum and dad have got an income and, and the first kid uh, starts to do a little bit of work on mum and dad's computers and after a while he says, hey, mum, dad, I'm you know, I'm spending four hours a week on this and, and in the real economy I could be earning 60 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. So you should pay me $240 an hour.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So... Um, dad thinks about it, he comes back the next day and says, yep, I'll pay you 240 bucks a week for helping us out uh, but there's one little problem I'm going to have to charge you rent
2: mm.
1: or accommodation allowance,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which will be $240 a week mm. and then the next kid who mows the lawn and stuff like that says, well, if He's getting paid for the computer stuff. I need to get paid for mowing the lawn. So, okay, you get paid for mowing the lawn, but I need to go and get an accommodation allowance from you. Mm. So there's no more wealth coming into the family, but there's lots of money going around the family in circles. Mm. Now, the problem in our economy is that every time it goes around, it's like the reverse of Monopoly. When they go past go, the tax man says, I'll take $200. He doesn't give you $200. So each time the money goes around in circles, uh, there's money coming out. So our, our manufacturing industries you know, dropped off as a percentage of our GDP quite dramatically, which leaves us with the main owners of mining and agriculture. And we've got a lot of people in the economy wanting to stop that. They want to stop coal mining for a start. Uh, They want to stop gas production. They want to stop producing cattle now. That would be the equivalent in the family of saying, oh, I don't like what you're doing for a job, Dad, so you'd better retire from your job Mm. and therefore we'll live on Mum's income. Mm. That's that's what we're doing in Australia and we need to be incredibly well aware that um, Mm. unlike other countries in the world that don't have the resources that we have, um, they've developed manufacturing, agricultural and and service industries that get an income coming from outside their economy. We haven't done that. We're, we're in big problems. Mm. Now, superimposed on top of that is that after the GFC, you've got major economies like the US, the UK uh, and Japan that effectively printed money um, the federal banks printed money, gave it to the governments, and the government lent it to people to go and do stuff. Mm. Now, what's happening now, of course, is that those governments are saying, well, we want our money back, mm. and they're doing that by increasing the rates on it.
2: Mm.
1: Well, we didn't do that. We didn't print money and give it to people to go and make more money. We actually borrowed that money from overseas and gave it away in terms of uh, that drive on everybody buying a ute, uh, pink backs, school halls, mm. numerous computers for kids, all the rest. We gave it away so it's not earning any money. And now, as a nation, we've got to pay that back to the people we borrowed it from. So not only is our wealth creation dropping off, but we've got more and more to pay back. So that's the economic cycle we're in and people need to understand that therefore it's not looking rosy in the future and I found it I found it I was absolutely blown away last night when you've got the the opposition spokesman for the treasury telling Australians they shouldn't be buying shares in Australian companies they should be buying international shares mm. I mean that was I just can't I still can't believe that he actually said that. Um, Mm -hmm. But effectively that's what's happened. And when you look at the, I mean, we've now got a $2.7 trillion super fund. Um, About five years ago, 10% of that was invested overseas. Uh, last year it was 30%. This year I believe it's going to be something like 50% will be invested overseas. So mm. all our investments are going offshore. Australia has some real economic problems that they need to, to deal with. So that's economics.
2: Mm.
1: On finance, we've got the average return over the last 25 years for super funds been about 7.4%. Uh, but if you'd bought... And if it had existed um, 25 years ago, an ETF on the ASX 200 would have returned 11.4%. So, where did that 4% go? Well, it went in fees, mm. fees that you fees that you're paying to a whole range of people. And the point that people need to know is that you can actually get that 11.4% yourself if you're prepared to do all the work. Mm. Um, if you're prepared to have an online um, account, if you're prepared to do research, find out the right you know, people that are going to help you. Mm. You mightn't get the whole 4%, but I can tell you that after about um, 8.5%, mm. every 1% that you get will be another million dollars in retirement. Mm. Mm. So if you pay one and a half percent fees instead of four percent fees, you're going to be a couple of million dollars better off in retirement. Mm. Um, and quite frankly, uh, the cut-off level at the moment for income is about 70000 per couple mm. uh, for a part pension. Mm. And, you know, even anything above $65,000, you are only getting cup and take me a week. Mm. Um, so, People that have been on salaries of 80, 90 grand and have got a spouse working as well, mm. they might have a combined income of 140, 150,000, are going into retirement at 70 grand a year. Mm. Yeah. Uh, those people are going to become very disillusioned. So I think, as i said before, Kenneth Hayne pointed out how that works extremely well. Um, there have been lots of people grabbing lots of fees for doing very little. If you do a bit of homework, you can help that. Now, one of the things that I came across when I did a spreadsheet here mm. is that if you start at the age of 22 on an average graduate salary of 50 grand a year and put your super in at that average salary of 50 grand a year and put you retire at
2: 67,
1: mm. you, at at anything over eight and a half percent, you will actually earn more in investment income than you ever will have from your salary.
2: Mm. Wow.
1: So, you know, in other words, your investment income is more than your salary, so why would you spend four years at university and 40 hours a week on your salary and not bother to put any time into your own financial affairs? Mm. Doesn't make sense.
0: No, that's right. And that's just a really good... Example to sort of look at wrapping up now, but that
1: superannuation
0: argument is just really important about, you know, making those important decisions now so you save yourself a lot of grief later on, which I think your book, The Parallel University, is all about. Now, just lastly, Richard, you sort of end the book, and I think it's a really nice sort of gentle point to finish on, and I thought it was a bit of advice, but um, it's about keeping good people around you, um, you know, in terms of a partner, friends, and business associates, how important is that? Oh,
1: look, I I, I think it's incredibly important. And and um, over the over the break, I've I've just read um, Jordan Peterson's Twelve Rules of Life, and it's obviously one of his. Mm. Is for goodness' sake, don't have people around you that are going to drag you down. Mm. Um, have people around you that are going to lift you up have people around you that are going to support you um, because we all know that if, if you do something and you feel good and then you do something else and you feel better and, and, and that's an exponential curve that, that keeps going. Mm. Whereas if you start to feel bad, then that's an ex- exponential curve going in the opposite direction mm. until you slowly... Um, I at the final year of school our headmaster got up and said you know there are, there are three ma- major times in your life it's the day you're, you're born the day you're married and the day you die mm-hmm. and you only got real control over one of them so don't stuff it up <laughs> well i confess i did stuff it up i i had a broken marriage and and that was with somebody who did drag me down and that's an incredibly difficult thing to to get over um, is when you've got somebody 24 hours a day, seven days a week telling you that you don't come up to scratch, uh, it really does send you under. Whereas if you've got somebody that's continually supporting you, um, then that's something that's just going to lift you to to greater heights.
0: Absolutely. That's really great. Now, just lastly, where can... um Listeners be able to get a copy of your book, or perhaps even get in touch with you. What's the best way to do to find a copy?
1: Um, well, it's on Book Suppository. It's on Amazon. Uh, it it was published through Court, Uh and you can get it through conacourt It depends where you are in the world and and um, what what's particularly on at the time. But it's uh, I think the the last um, information I had is that. Um, probably Book repository was the best mm-hmm. um, because they're, uh, I think at the moment they're um, postage-free, so...
0: yeah, and um, I'll put a link to the book, of course, with a few other things that we've mentioned um, in the podcast or in this episode in the actual show notes, so um, uh, there'll be a link there. Right. But um, Richard Crone... Um, author of The Parallel University. Thanks for joining me today on the Jacobs Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time and sharing some great lessons from what I think is a really, really handy book. So thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Sean. Uh, pleasure to spend time with you as, as usual and uh, pleasure to get the word out there to the young people that the the hurdles put in front of them aren't quite as big as they might think they are and if they look at it closely enough, they'll they'll find that they are that he, they are capable of jumping over them and, and they shouldn't, you know, put it off too long.
0: And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the first episode of 2019. That was Richard Crone and his book is The Parallel University, available from all fine bookstores. Um, just a reminder, as what I said at the start of the show, to please get in touch if you have any ideas for future podcasts or if you have any feedback on that episode or other episodes. reminder to please rate the podcast, whatever medium you listen to it on. Uh, Please rate it or get in touch with me at seanjacobs.com.au if you have any further ideas for discussion or any topics you'd like to see explored or feedback. Um, And please share the podcast with friends as it's a key goal to try and grow the podcast and achieve as much outreach as possible in 2019. Thanks very much for listening and until next time.